Verse 20. Then they watched him carefully and sent spies who pretended to be sincere. And they wanted to take advantage of what he might say. So they could not deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Okay, so they, remember, they're not allowed to kill anybody without Rome's approval. So they can't just get the people. They just, they have to not only get the people to turn against Jesus so they can kill him, but they also have to find what they need in order to get Rome to approve of the execution. And if they just go to them and say, he's a false messiah, Rome's going to like, whatever. If they go to him and they say, he claims to be God or our whatever, Rome doesn't care about all that religious crap. All Rome cares about is the power of Rome. And so now they need to find things that show Jesus to be treason, to be an enemy of the state. And that's what they're going to try to drum up on him. Thus they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly. Well, that's a loaded statement. And show no partiality, but teach us the way of God in accordance with the truth. Oh, please, we love you so much. And we admire and respect you so much. Help us understand us small-minded people. Is it right for us to pay tribute tax to Caesar or not? Now, this is the thing. They know that if Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes, then they can say, there you go. That's all Rome cares about. And if he says don't pay taxes, they can say he's riling the people up against Rome. He's starting a revolution to overthrow Rome. He's robbing Rome of things of what they want. This is treasonous. Rome, there he is, and Rome will kill. But if he says pay taxes... To Rome, that he could say, see you people? He's no different than all those Jews who have been Hellenized. And they've decided to side with Rome. And they really want to Rome, the ones who kill you and take your children and crucify your fathers and the ones who are oppressing you with all these taxes. He's pro all that. The, le- the tax collector's right. He's worse than them because now he's promoting his teaching. This is who he really is. And the people will turn on him and they'll want to him kill. Either way, they've won. They've won. But Jesus God, and he don't play those games. But Jesus perceived their deceit, and he said to them, Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription is on it. A denarius was one day's wages. It was one day's wages. So this is a hefty coin. This is a hefty coin. This is like giving somebody a $100 bill or more, um, if you were thinking about minimum wage and that kind of stuff. And on the coin was an image of Tiberius, the current Caesar. And he was on the denarius. So we, we found thousands of these in archaeological digs. So on one side is the face of Tiberius, the current Caesar over Rome. And there's an inscription below this that says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The previous emperor before him. On the reverse side, his mother Livia is on there. And she is portrayed as the incarnation of the goddess of peace, along with the prescription high priest. So you've got Tiberius claiming to be God on one side, and you've got his mother claiming to be a goddess on the other side. And on one side you have king, and on the other side you have priest, political and religious power. And if this isn't an affront to God, and then not only that, you have graven images. And they're forced into circulation among the Jewish people to use. And so Jesus says, hand this to me. 
Now, here is the hypocrisy all of it. The fact that they can pull out one so quickly and hand it to them shows that they're horrible. They're claiming to obey the law. You shall have no graven images. They're claiming to do the right thing. And yet here, they're like, oh yeah, here you go. And that's not even said here. That's just kind of the, Jesus, I can just see them like taking the coin like, really? Like, no words are necessary. Do you understand the irony of what you just did here? You handed me a coin with graven images on here as you're trying to entrap me as anti-God or anti-Rome. He says, whose image is on it? They said Caesar's. So he said to them, then give to Caesar, or some translations say render, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. This is powerful. Because Jesus completely dodges the whole thing. And not in a dodgy political kind of a way, but in a correct understanding kind of way. He's basically saying, you've asked the complete wrong question. Who made these coins? Caesar did. Who owns them? Who put all the money and investment in it? Who's keeping your economy going? Caesar is. Who's made all this possible for you to be able to trade without like, I mean, remember trading with currency is a good thing because if you don't have currency, then you have to argue like, well, I think my two ducks are worth your cow. And you're like, no, it's not. How do you even make, like, that's what trading is. You have to like figure out like, how many ducks are worth a cow? And nobody agrees on that. That's all subjective. But if you set a price on coinage, then trade becomes fluid and people can prosper more. And so what Jesus is saying is like, you got to owe Caesar some things. He has created an economy that's allowed you to thrive. Now, granted, it's a horrible government too, but it's not all bad. Caesar's the one who put all the money into this. Caesar's the one who's provided all this. Caesar's the one who's made this possible. Give it back to him. If it belongs to him, give it back to him. If he's providing things, then give it back to him. But render under God the things that are his. Now, what does he mean by that? You have God's image on you. God has minted you. And God has stamped you with his image. He fashioned you like a coin is fashioned and a refinery out of the dust of the earth. And then he imprinted you when he breathed into you with his image, like the great stamping machine comes down and mints the coin. And he created you to create his economy, the kingdom of God. And he created you to build his economy, loving God and loving others. And therefore you are to give your image, or you are to give yourself as the image of God, back to God, as Romans is going to come along later in the words of Paul, as a living sacrifice to him. If Caesar wants the money, then give it back to him. But God has something way more valuable than money. He has all of creation, and specifically you, as his image. And he can do whatever he wants. He can build a kingdom for all eternity without any pain or suffering with you if you give yourself over to him. And so basically he says, God doesn't care about money. When has he ever cared about money? Money was an offering to God to show your trust in him and your dependency. God didn't need your money in the sacrificial system. He wanted your money because your hearts were attached to money. And it was your way of saying that God is more important to me than this money or this grain and that kind of stuff. 
And that's the only reason you want it. What God wanted more than anything was your lives to serve Him and worship Him and obey Him and expand the garden. And, and, and that's what He's going to use to build this new age, this new kingdom, the community of people. So whatever. Support your government. I'm not anti-government. I don't support rebellion, Romans 15. Give to Him what is His and then give to God what is His and everything will thrive. And let God take care of the government and all that kind of stuff. And that's his answer to them. And it's a powerful answer. It's a, a mind-blowing answer. It's an outside-of-the-box, holy crap answer. And he basically, they're left with, oh, crap. <laughs> because he didn't say, stop paying taxes, nor did he say, pay taxes. He just said, return everything that belongs to the original owner. And that's his answer. And that's going to become the basis for everything in the epistles. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Your body is a temple of God. All these things are going to become the basis that you are the image of God. And this shows himself to be truly the word of God. Truly the word of God. And he owns them on this one. This was most likely the question of the Pharisees. Now we've already talked about the Pharisees a lot. Remember, they hold to pretty much everything that we would hold to. They, they embrace the Torah. They embrace all the prophets. They believe in an afterlife. They believe in angels. They believe in the resurrection. They believe in the Mosaic law. They believe in all these things. They would be a good modern-day Protestant or Catholic Christian or Greek Orthodox in that kind of holding true to Scripture and these ideas, biblical ideas that we have. The Sadducees now come along. They're a part of this thing called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is a governing body. It's like Congress. And the Sadducees have had the majority seat holding for years. Okay, we, And if you want to understand all the political complexities of that, go back to the intertestamental history lesson uh, where we go through how that all got formed, the Sanhedrin, how the Pharisees came into power, how they lost power, and the Sadducees came up. But basically what you have is a Democratic-Republican kind of like balance of powers where the Sadducees hold the seat, primary seat. And the Sadducees, they basically held to the Torah only. They did not, they, they, they held to the first five books of Moses. They held to the Mosaic Law. They held to the Ten Commandments. And that was it. They denied the prophets. They did not believe the prophets had any kind of authority at all. They did not think that they were inspired by God in any kind of a way. And they denied the afterlife. They denied the existence of angels. They denied a resurrection. So kind of like a modern-day atheist in that sense. Any concept of the spiritual, other than the existence of God, um, they denied. Okay? So they believed God exists in the spiritual realm outside of creation. But anything else, angels, resurrections, afterlife, any of that kind of stuff, that didn't exist. You just died and became worm food. And that was it. And so they held to the Torah. They also were the ones who made incredible political compromises with Rome. They're the ones who basically said, you know what, you Pharisees, you Essenes, you Zealots, all you Jews. The reality is Rome has had power for a very long time. They're not going anywhere. The Zealots have tried to start revolutions and revolts and failed miserably. They've just dented the car barely underneath and nobody's really noticed it. Rome just crucifies you left and right. 
to compromise with Rome and have some kind of political power ruling over our own people and having our own power as Jews is better than being under the boot of Rome. And so they've made all the political compromises. And the Jews would have respect for the Pharisees, but they would view the Sadducees like people in World War II who were Jewish people helping Hitler hunt down Jews and kill them. And that's how they would view the Sadducees and all that kind of stuff. So they didn't have much respect for them. But the Sadducees had the political power. And they want Jesus dead too. Because even though they haven't been in the thicket of the streets, because they're up in the, the Congress, they don't come out in the streets. They don't hang out with the everyday normal people like the Pharisees do. And they're just up there. But now that Jesus come on their doorstep, they're like, oh my gosh, this guy's out of control. He has a lot more power than what we thought. I mean, we're just kind of following from Jerusalem, but it's not like we have Fox or CNN. So we didn't really know what was going on in the, like, the back waters of Galilee. But now that he's here, this is not good. And so we're going to help the Pharisees undermine him. They come up with a scenario that will help Jesus understand the stupidity of resurrection and the afterlife. So he'll look like a moron among the people and they'll realize he's not worth following. After they just watched the Pharisees got owned so beautifully. But, you know, you Pharisees, there's a reason why you don't have a political powerful seat in Congress. We're better than you. So we'll show you how it's done. Now, some of the Sadducees who contend that there was no resurrection came to him and they asked him, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife, but no children, the man must marry the widow and the father of the children for his brother. This is a Levitical law. And this is the thing called leveret marriage. And we talked about this in Genesis chapter 38. When Judah's sons who were married to Tamar died, the first son died, and um, he gave Tamar to his brother or his other son, and then he died. He was supposed to give it to the other one, but he didn't want to do that because he thought she was cursed, but it was really his sons being evil. And we saw this most beautifully in the book of Ruth, when Elimelech has died with no brothers, and then his sons were both dead, leaving nobody to continue the line, and then Ruth is willing to do the leveret marriage with Boaz in order to continue the line of Elimelech. That's the main point of that story. So basically what this law says, um, detailed out in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, and illustrated in Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, is that if I am married, but I have no children, and I die, then my line is going to die with me. And we've seen as we've gone through the First Testament, ancestry and descendants and lineages and genealogies are a big deal to God, very important to God. What it is, my brother is now required to marry my widowed wife in order to provide a son for me to continue my name, my line, and my inheritance. The Sadducees believe in this. They're, they're obedient to the, the Torah, and this is in Deuteronomy 25. So they practice this law when it's necessary, and, and they point this out. And they're like, Jesus, you know about this, right? And they're like, yes, yes, I know. So let's follow this out to its logical conclusion. There were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died without children. And the second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seventh died and leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven have married her. 
So we're like, okay, so this guy marries this woman, and he dies without any children. So the second brother takes it, but he dies before he can provide children. So now we have two lines that we have to continue on. But the third one dies before he can choose. Now we have three, and then done it all the way down to the seventh, and they all die, no children at all. And then she dies, and they're all supposedly resurrected into an afterlife. Ha ha, that sounds dumb. Who is she going to belong to? I mean, you also make it very clear throughout the Bible that polygamy is not God's will, and polygamy never works out well, and now we've got polygamy in heaven because of this stupid resurrection kind of afterlife idea. Right? Ha ha, Jesus, you're so stupid. All you Pharisees are so stupid. And once you can't answer that because you're going to have to either say pro-polygamy or deny the resurrection, and then you're all going to be like, people are going to be like, oh my gosh, we're so stupid for following this guy. Okay, we're so brilliant. But Jesus said to them, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are regarded as worthy to share in the age of the resurrection neither die or are neither. A resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. See, so he's like, Well, they just don't marry in the afterlife. Oh. He goes on. In fact, they can no longer die because they are equal to angels and are sons of God since they are sons of the resurrection. So he says they're just like angels. Angels don't marry in the afterlife or in the spiritual realm or in heaven or whatever you want to call it. And when you die and you're resurrected into the second age, then nobody will ever die again. And so there is no marriage and the afterlife. Marriage is an earthly construct, uh, God's construct, but a construct for earth and this life. What he basically does is he completely sidesteps them all, just like the coinage, and he just basically says, well, they just don't marry. And we know that angels don't marry, so they'll just be like them, and that's it. So this concept of the afterlife and resurrection is not dumb. And your question is completely rendered absolutely useless and meaningless. And that's his answer. And he owns them. And what do you do to that? You're like, oh. <coughs> Let's pause a little bit. There's no marriage in heaven. Do not build a theology of what marriage and marriage does not look like on one verse. We have no other verses in the entire Bible about there being no marriage in heaven. Now, I'm not saying that there is marriage in heaven. Jesus obviously said there isn't. But you're like, okay, then, like, what about my wife? What about my husband? Like, da 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 I don't know. There's so much about heaven that we don't know. There's so much about the afterlife that we don't know. There's so much about angels and demons that we don't know. What, what eternity will look like. What, what the kingdom of God on earth will look like. How heaven and earth become one again. What will we be doing for eternity? There are so many questions that we don't have answers to about the afterlife. To develop a complete theology, a comprehensive theology of marriage in heaven based on one tiny little verse is not, like, it's, it's not wise in any kind of way nor to develop a theology what it means to be like angels, or that angels are not given in marriage. Especially when the point that Jesus is making is not to develop a theology of marriage, but to show the ridiculousness of their question. And so you can't build a theology off of a simple, narrow statement that wasn't even intended to develop an idea, but to refute another idea. And a lot of people have pointed to this 
as some kind of an argument or there's lots of things that it incorporates into like when people are like, um, well, I'm not going to go down those rabbit trails, but, um, and you can't do that. Don't do that. Even with all the verses in the Bible about what it means to be saved through faith alone, it's still an incredibly complex idea. It's so simple that we merely have to place our faith in God to be saved, but it's so complex and so mind-blowing that people have written books after books after books just scratching the surface of what it means, the gospel of grace. And we have a plethora of verses. So don't attempt to develop theology of afterlife marriage on this thing. The guess is that one of the purposes of marriage is to refine you, to make you more godly and that kind of stuff, and to unite you with somebody in a very close way to kind of duplicate the Trinity and the union they have. And one of the reasons there might not be marriage is because we will be united with everyone. And we will be incredibly close to everybody and we will not be refined anymore. Now, I'm not trying to develop a theology of marriage. I know I just said that, don't. But I'm just saying one of the possibilities, because it's still worth exploring and asking and hypothesizing, it's just not worth carving into stone in a theological treatise. Some scholars have suggested the idea that when Jesus prayed, Father, I pray that they'll be one with each other like we are one with each other and that they'll be one with us like we're one with each other, that that is going to be that is going to be what accomplished in the second coming of Jesus Christ and the redemption of all humanity. And so it's not that we're going to be married to all of each other, but we're going to be the bride of Christ and we're going to be united to each other in such an intimate, deep way on a triune kind of level. And I don't know what that means either. I just know Jesus said it. And if you prayed for it, then it's possible. But I'm not saying we're all going to become gods and part of the Trinity. I'm just going to say there's going to be some kind of unity there that I just can't even comprehend that you won't need marriage because you'll have that unity with everyone. And so that might be a reason why it's not there. And so, but basically this is his point. He's owning them. Now he goes even further because now he needs to show, see the Pharisees agreed with him. Their theology was pretty much in alignment with Jesus. They're, they're corrupt, they're evil, they're oppressive. But their theology about the Torah and afterlife and resurrection, all that kind of stuff, was pretty correct. It was in alignment. Was it weird here and there and that kind of stuff? Yeah, but welcome to all of our denominations. Okay? That doesn't mean that they're wrong in their theology. It just there's complexity. And we haven't really figured out all the complexity of every little detail of every theological idea. But the Sadducees straight up deny the resurrection. Where Jesus could just say, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is his and then move on and be done. And they're like, they're totally owned and their mouths are dropped and their tails are between their legs and they're running away to hide their shame. He's like yanking the Pharisees back as they're running away with their tail between their legs. and like, no, 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 I'm not done with you because you actually have really crappy theology and we're going to deal with that too. And so notice that he's going to show them that the resurrection, the afterlife actually does exist but he's not going to go to the prophets. It's so easy to prove the resurrection, the afterlife of the prophets. But he's going to go to what they understand. And they believe in the Torah. And so he's going to use the Torah to school them. Because he is the word of God. And he knows every iota of the word of God. And so he says to them, What about the passage of the burning bush with Moses? You know the one where God shows up to Moses at the burning bush and says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. We've heard that over and over and over again. 
It's the idea that I'm the God of people. I'm not, the, I'm not a nature God like Baal and Ra and all of them. I'm a God of people. And I'm a covenantal God. And I'm a relational God. And I'm a generational God. And that's the implication of that statement. But then Jesus goes on even further and says, yeah, and it means all of that. But now he is not God of the dead, but of the living. For all live before him. So Jesus says, you all agree that God is not a God of the dead. He's not some God of death that rules over the underworld and keeps souls occupied and that kind of stuff. He's a God of the living. He's the living God. He's the creator God. You all agree with that, right? And the Sadducees are like, yeah. The implication he's saying is, if God is the God of the living, but he claims that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they're all dead, then they have to be alive. When Moses is hearing God say that, Abraham, Jacob, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all dead. And if he's the God of the living, then why would he say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They're dead. Unless there's an afterlife and a resurrection where they truly are alive, where their, their being went somewhere else and where their body is awaiting a day to be rejoined to their being in a resurrection. The only way that God can be the God of the living and that statement to be accurate is if there is an afterlife, if their spirit continues after death, and if there is a resurrection. And they say to him, Teacher, you have spoken correctly. The experts in the law. The Pharisees are like, Amen, brother. Because now they're like, hey, Sadducees, you're my best friend, right? Let's kill him. And then Jesus says something in schools of Sadducees, and they like go back to their old political rivalry ways, and they're like, yeah! And they're like, oh, wait a minute, we're, we're cheering with him now. Because they did not dare ask him any more questions. They're like, man, we are so dumb compared to this guy. He's just owning us. And they thought for sure that we're going to make Jesus look like an idiot before the people. We're going to own him in theological conversations. And, and, if, we, and, if, and if, if that will be a bonus, or that will be, that will be the ultimate goal, that will be easy to do. But the bonus is that Rome will look down and realize he's a horrible treasonous man. And then they'll want to kill him. And after it's all said and done, they're like, holy crap, we look dumber than we did before. He owned us. That nasty vote for me, anti the other politician political campaign that we just ran on all those TV stations actually decreased our polls. That was a horrible investment. And Jesus just owned them. 